This episode of the TCIA podcast is brought to you by the brand new TCI Magazine website, the digital supplement to the most widely read periodical in the tree care industry. No matter where you are in the world, you can have the top-notch content, timely industry updates, and cutting-edge advertisers you have come to expect from TCI Magazine for the past 30 years, all in the palm of your hand. The fully responsive TCI Magazine website breaks down years of content into neatly organized categories specific to certain aspects of tree care businesses, making it easy to navigate and find articles on exactly what you're looking for. You can discuss articles in real time through the new commenting feature, as well as share articles with friends, family, and colleagues through vastly improved social sharing. We've also been listening to our readers over the years. And to make the content more accessible than ever, we have included article translations for Spanish, French, and German. If English isn't your primary language, you can still enjoy the experience of reading TCI Magazine. So mark your calendars for August 1st, when the greatest magazine in the tree care industry hits small screens everywhere at tcimag.tcia.org. That's tcimag.tcia.org. The tree care industry has stories and knowledge just waiting to be explored. We'll have a variety of expert guests and innovators from all corners of the industry sharing their stories and extensive knowledge on our show. In this episode of the TCIA podcast, our staff arborist Chucky Anderson sits down with Craig Bachman to discuss the importance of your inspection and fostering a culture of safety within your business. Craig established Tree 133 to provide safety-focused contract climbing for small tree care companies. He helps his clients complete challenging products, grow their knowledge, and most importantly, implement safe work practices. Tree 133 also provides direct tree care services, and Craig is a certified arborist, a certified tree worker, and an experienced safety and skills trainer. Let's start there. Why is equipment inspection important? This stuff is made to, you know, fortify and to, you know, sustain hurricanes. Uh, why, you know, why should we be checking carabiners and the steel components? I want to clarify your question just a little bit. You use the term equipment, and what I think we're talking about specifically is climbing and rigging gear. And if I may, I'd like to really focus on the climbing side of it, the life safety, life support, uh, fall protection tools that we use. Uh, that's everything from carabiners to ropes, harnesses, slings, hitch cords, pulleys, redirect tools, you name it, right? Everything out there is, seems to be available these days. And what's involved with inspecting that? Well, it's really a few things. In the big picture, we inspect our gear a few times. One is a daily pre-climb inspection, and that is a, a sort of a high-level check of key components, whether it's our harness, our rope, our hitch cord, whatnot, carabiner function, before going up in the tree or I guess the same would be true before going up in an aerial lift. Another now, inspection. Hey, hey, excuse me, can I interject? I just I want just a quick question here. So I'm making the, the assumption if we're talking about climbing equipment that it's going to be the climber themselves who is making this inspection or is this something that an employer is expected to do? Oh, that's a great question. The daily pre-climb inspection is typically performed by the climber, by the user of the equipment. He or she will be the most knowledgeable about the equipment use, its function, its proper fit. So the daily pre-climb inspection is performed by the user. But what you're getting at is an interesting point that it is 
the responsibility of the company to ensure those inspections take place. And that's through both training of the employee, training of the user, as well as through documentation and accountability to be sure that those are actually taking place. That's an excellent question. Sounds like it's a little training of the employer as well. (laughs) Maybe a lot of training. (laughs) We all have a lot to learn about climbing inspection. We'll talk about that more later. Um, But the first one we talked about was daily pre-climb inspection. Another one is a more detailed, formal, documented inspection. Many equipment manufacturers or industry standards will identify that that has to happen at least once a year. In my experience, really quarterly seems to be about the right interval. And what we mean by a detailed document inspection is sitting down probably in the shop rather than out on a job site and pulling out all the climbing gear in my kit or your kit or each climber's bag of equipment going through the rope, uh, going through all of the carabiners, looking at every aspect of the harness, and not only inspecting it carefully, but documenting the condition of each piece. The sort of the best practice behind this would be to have some sort of a spreadsheet or a tool. There's a variety of different uh, web-based tools. Paper Trail makes a nice one. There's a variety of Excel-based templates other people have created to track the acquisition date, inspection intervals, and retirement of individual pieces of gear. And that really, I think, makes a lot of sense on a quarterly basis. Uh, that's, that's really my opinion based on observation of my own experience. It could be as long an interval as a year. Some companies might uh, decide to do that monthly. But that detailed, formal, documented inspection is extremely important. And one of the best practices is to trade equipment. And what I mean by that is, Chucky, if you and I we're two climbers at a company. Rather than inspecting our own gear, we should hand our gear to the other person. So you would look at my harness and I would look at yours. And it's funny, what that does is it changes our perspective because I, I suspect like most climbers, I've got little pieces of gear that I justify. Oh, well, that carabiner is still okay. Or, oh, that's my favorite hitch cord. And yeah, I know it's a little worn. But when you look at my gear or I look at yours, we see it differently. And so that idea of trading gear can make a big difference. Then you have to try to justify it to the other person inspecting and try to convince them. Uh, and maybe while you're convincing them, you're saying it out loud and maybe it convinces you that it's really ready to retire at that point, possibly. Yeah. And <laughs> there's a funny thing that happens, particularly if, uh, if the uh, employees, if the climbers know each other well, they call BS pretty quickly on the other person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice try, Chucky. That carabiner. No, that, that's junk. And you would, I'm sure, say the same thing to me because in the end, we really do care about each other's safety. And we don't rationalize some of these issues as easily about other people's equipment as we do with our own. So, and also with that, Craig, uh, these documented, um, this documentation, what, what happens to that? Do we keep that in our equipment bag? Do we put that in the main office? How long do we hang on to those documents? I mean, if it's important enough to write down, what then is the procedure for the lifeline of those documents? That's a great question. So the lifeline and that uh, sort of crumb trail that shows the history of the equipment, when it was acquired, inspection intervals, when it was retired, according to OSHA, that should be retained for the service life of the equipment. And what I've seen work really well is whether it's kept in paper or electronically, having a file for each climber or each person to whom life safety equipment is assigned. And that list just keeps growing. And we can show in there what someone is currently using, 
what the age of it is, what the condition of it is, might even have planned retirement. Typical retirement on a harness is about five years, obviously uh, barring some sort of damage that wouldn't require it being retired early. But we can plan ahead for replacement intervals, which provides an advantage for the company. But also we can track what equipment that uh, user had in the past and how has their use changed over time. Is this person going through hitch cords every two months or have they had a hitch cord for two years? How often are they assigned carabiners? And so it provides sort of an inventory management tool as well as something for tracking the condition and assignment of life safety equipment. That's a really great way of uh, keeping the history of not only the employee, but the equipment used. That's a fantastic idea. You brought up an interesting point in there, which is where should that be stored? If your experience with climbing is anything like mine, my gear gets dirty and wet and everything in the truck seems to get dirty as well. And so keeping those records at the shop or back in the office seems to be a better practice. Albeit, I have seen some companies that are extremely organized and they'll keep a binder in a truck if a crew is consistently assigned to that truck. Mm, But when crews start bouncing around, that gets pretty hard. So keeping it in the office or the shop seems to make a lot of sense. That's probably the best way. You know, there's one more thought that occurs to me, and uh, it's a saying my my mother had. And uh, she always said when we were around the house, she said, when in doubt, throw it out. And it occurred to me that that applies to life safety equipment as well. Rather than rationalizing why to keep a $20 carabiner or a $30 hitch cord or even a multi-hundred dollar harness. If there is doubt in your mind or my mind or an inspector's mind about the condition of life safety equipment, get rid of it. Get rid of it, or I guess leaving the option open, have it inspected by the manufacturer. Any of the major manufacturers would gladly uh, receive equipment, inspect it, and provide a report on it. Well, that's a really good tip. Then that kind of uh, increases the longevity of your very expensive gear, which is you're more likely to um, use past the point of uh, you know sensibility rather than throw it away because it costs so much. So having the manufacturer inspect it or give their two cents on whether or not it can be repaired or not, I, I think that's a that's a great opportunity to extend the again extend the lifetime of your equipment without having to spend extra f- funding on it. Well, the question comes up: uh, How often are climbers? pushing gear, particularly harnesses, beyond the usable life or beyond the anticipated service life. And this is just my perspective. I've done a lot of gear inspections at competitions, in training events, on large job sites, big projects. Uh, At the ITCC level, I've seen a lot of gear. And in my own experience, the vast majority of harnesses are pushed beyond their anticipated service life. The fact is it's expensive. And 300 400 500 maybe now $600, for the average climber, that's a lot of money. It's not necessarily a lot for the company, but in the climber's perspective, it's a lot of money. We get attached to our equipment. And, uh, you know, if I, can, if I can pick on high-level climbers a little bit at the ITCC level or other major climbing competitions, it's not unusual to have a climber have their working harness and their competition harness. And that competition harness is beautiful and perfect. And the working harness, not so much. You know, and, and we can all learn from the experience of doing gear inspection and hold ourselves accountable to a higher standard of safety because in the end, being safe at work enables us to have the rest of life, which is why we're going to work in the first place. Well, that's a pretty telling observation, Craig, that if at competitions you're seeing climbers who are uh, setting aside a competition-only harness that looks in pretty good condition because it's being judged. 
but then going to work every day in the same old harness, the same old, uh, you know, treatment of it, that's actually very eye-opening. It's uh, actually a kind of a startling real revelation. Uh, I would think, uh, well, you would think, yeah, oh, a climber should have the best equipment and keep it up, but you're right, cost is prohibitive, and, and, and the prohibitive cost makes it um, almost impossible to turn those things over, those, those safety pieces of gear, as frequently as possibly they should. That is... Um, that's very startling. <laughs> well, my, my goal is not to throw anyone under the bus. I'm, I'm, and I will own some of this as well. When I was doing a lot of traveling and training, I had my training gear and it was all set up exactly the way I wanted it to um, be ready for training. And then I had my work gear. And I did that for a few reasons. One is living here in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest, it's not unusual for my work gear to be wet and gross at the end of the week. And there's no way I want to stick it on a bag and get on an airplane and then go do training the next day. And so there was a functional reason for having two sets of gear, but it also led to being quite a difference between my typical work gear and my training gear, or my typical work gear and what might be competition gear. And it's easy to rationalize uh, why our work gear is in the condition it is. Well, it gets used a lot. Well, it gets rained on. Well, it gets dirty. It's not an excuse for accepting poor condition or gear that is out of spec. And we really, myself included, can all hold ourselves to a higher standard. So when do we bite the bullet? If, if we're looking at our very expensive harness that is, is worn and torn and, and we keep pushing one more day, one more day, when does, when, when does the light bulb click on uh, at the next paycheck? Uh, or it just seems like it's, that's a you know, very fine line of playing a hazardous game of roulette. It's, it's probably not a one, single answer for everybody out there. But it'd be nice to, I don't know, if you can offer some advice on, don't wait for that light bulb to click on, <laughs> open, the, open the shades or something a little bit sooner, um, or have, you know, I, like, I think maybe your buddy inspection might come into play there where your buddy might call you on uh, the time to retire your equipment. That's a great question, Chucky. And, and how do we get that light to turn on? I think we have to look at where the accountability lies. You know, the vast majority of climbers are working for a company of one sort or another, most of us are not self-employed. And really the liability, the responsibility for the condition of that equipment lies with the company. And so how do we get a business to pull the trigger, so to speak, on replacing harnesses? And I think that goes back to our documentation of life cycle and knowing ahead of time, when was that harness acquired? When should it be retired? What are the inspection intervals? What is the condition of it? And looking at what is the, the cost-benefit ratio or what is the risk of not investing. In the end, for a tree company that is moderately successful or better, buying another harness is really not a big deal. But the costs associated with a failure, with a serious incident or fatality, are astronomical. Oh, absolutely. And is that one the process? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, letting the numbers drive the decision. On one end, it's the financial motivation. Secondly, I guess it's the moral obligation. And third is using scheduled replacement. And every, I'm going to make up a few numbers here, but every three months, replace a hitch cord. Or every six months. Every five years, plan on a harness retirement. Heck, do it every four years. Get crazy, right? A new rope, once a year, piece of cake. If somebody's climbing a lot, maybe it's twice a year. Rope is cheap. Carabiners are cheap for the business. For an individual climber who's making 16, 18, 22 bucks an hour, spending 250 bucks on a rope 
yeah, maybe that's difficult, but it's really not his or her obligation. It's the company's obligation. And what do you say to the company owner who, uh, who throws in the cheap hat and, uh, uh, oh, the, the employee doesn't take care of it and, oh, I'm replacing his, the, the equipment way too frequently because they're, they're reckless or they don't know how to climb on it right. What, what do you say to that response? It's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge, and I have empathy for that, that perspective and response, and I think it goes back to safety culture and what level of care do we have for each other, what level of care do we have for our employees, what level of care do we have for our equipment. And you know the saying that fish stinks from the head, right? That leadership sets culture, and whether it's a small company or a big company, setting a culture that prioritizes safety and demonstrates care for its employees in all aspects, I believe we'll see that returned by the employees caring for their equipment. Well, we would hope so. We would hope that uh, we can get employers, company owners to stop running around so much and trying to put out all the fires and really pay attention and focus on uh, their employee training, their, their culture of safety, uh, their entire company, rather than just trying to run the company while running the company. You know what the saying is, uh, work on your company rather than in the company. It'd be great if we could get some of the, the, the busier, smaller tree care company owners who are also um, either estimating or doing the tree work, if we could get them to step back when they're making these decisions about uh, equipment purchasing as well as employee training to then step back and, and to, to take on their own training and to put on uh, a, a trainee's hat with regards to uh, culture of safety and, and the whole outlook on just, you know, um, everything it is that they're, they're expecting their employees to do without then pointing a finger. I think that's the long way of just saying, um, I, I, I'm sure that TCIA has some tools and we're coming up with some, some training opportunities to offer business owners and, and busy uh, tree company owners the opportunity to, to learn some more of these things, how to step back and manage rather than uh, you know, doing it all and, and attempting to manage because that's where things slip through the cracks. And that's where I'm thinking, um, you know, we're going to call the cheap flag and throw the cheap flag and, and purchase uh, either inadequate equipment or equipment or use it again and again, and you know, just to get your money's worth. So it'd be great if we can start really getting the information out to these tree care company owners, some of the tools that TCIA is providing in the care of like in the form of like the executive arborist workshop, um, of course, TCI Expo coming up in, in, in the fall. So um, I, I would encourage company owners if, you know, if they need some help in regards to running their company, just give TCIA a, a call. We'll, we'll put somebody on the case and get you some help, get you some relief. <laughs> You're getting at something really important, Chucky, and I can share my own experience in this that one of the things I've learned over the past few years as my business has grown is that performing tree work is not the hard part of owning a tree company. Being an owner operator, that's a tough role. I, I'm in that position. Most tree business owners are in that position to some degree or another. We are owner operators. We've got to wear a bunch of different hats and we've got to be good at a lot of different things or at least reasonably good. But the big aha I think that has happened for me and I suspect many other successful business owners have had is that the tree work is the easy part. Yeah. It's everything else that's hard. Yeah. We get into tree work because we like the tree work. 
and then we, we find out later we have to run a business. Well, we didn't get into the business to run a business in, in most aspects. I mean, I started in arboriculture with a, a, train, a pruning operation, just me doing some ornamental pruning. And all, that's all I knew was the pruning part of it and how tree respond. But then, you know, billing, invoicing and estimating, that was all foreign to me. And so you're right, we're, we're tree people first. And then it dawns on us, oh, now I got to run a business. That's a whole new set of tools and, and abilities that we didn't learn in the uh, um, Certified Arborist Study Guide. And it's not unique just to the tree world. It's not unique to arboriculture. This, uh, I see it in many trades. You know, think about plumbers, think about electricians, that they start their own companies. It's very much a parallel experience to us. Somebody who starts a nice, good quality, small electrical company, he or she was an electrician. And now all of a sudden, he's a manager and is, does invoicing and does proposals and does social media and does all these myriad things <laughs> that were not why he or she got into that role. And, and exactly. it's, um, it, I think it's a function of being in the trades. I guess you're right. So with that, we have to stop and acknowledge where again, where we could use some more support. Um, and if uh, training our employees or getting our employees to uh, follow a culture of safety, um, you know, that should be paramount, uh, especially with regards to climbing and rigging, gear inspections. There's all kinds of inspections we should be doing on a, on a regular basis, monthly, weekly, daily, annually, you know, with our large equipment, our trucks and our chippers, our uh, aerial lift, um, booms, all, all kinds of things that we should be inspecting. But I think where it gets very personal is, you know, mostly the climbing equipment, of course, rigging gear as well. So yes, having a, having a culture of safety and, and getting that ingrained as part of your air quotes tree work is probably the next best thing that we can do to, to get people more in tuned with their inspection processes. Oh, absolutely. And you know, one of the big questions is, why are we not better at inspection? Why does it get overlooked? The big answer is time. When I think about being an owner-operator and the thousands of other men and women are in these roles, the million things that we have to do gets us a bit frazzled. We start running around, thinking about this, making sales calls, sending invoices, dealing with an employee who's out sick and a chipper who's down and a truck that's in the wrong place and a truck that didn't get dumped yesterday. And where's the fuel and where's that saw mechanic? And how come the order hasn't come in yet with the new gear? We get all these things going on and we start to rush. And we see that as well on the job site. We tend to use time as our metric of success. How fast did we get something done? It's a really interesting idea. We talked about the trades before. Try to draw comparisons with other trades and ask myself, how am I doing and how effective would I be in those professions if I had that skill set? You know, I think about electricians or steel workers or plumbers. Do you know any plumber or electrician or steel worker who rushes to complete their work? Oh my goodness, no. They're so detailed, aren't they? Do they run on the job site? Do they, are they, are, are they screaming at each other in the tree to hurry up? That's something that's unique. And I, I'm not sure I can explain where it came from, but that's sort of the stereotype of the uh, tree work job site, right? A bunch of people rushing around and machines running and chainsaws and some guy's looking for his hard hat and another guy's up in the tree having a smoke and somebody's yelling at him to hurry. And I think about a job site where they're hanging steel. 
or I think about somebody doing plumbing under my house and how just gobsmacked I'd be if those behaviors showed up at my home in other trades. And it's an interesting way to think about what we're doing in the sense that when we ask why does inspection of climbing equipment get overlooked, it's because that's not really our culture yet. We are measuring our success on the job site in how fast did we get it done. And part of the way you save time is you cut corners. You know what? I've been there. I don't mean to suggest that I'm better than anyone else. I've been there and I still struggle with it. I've really worked to build a high quality professional tree company and I still struggle with gear inspections. And I'll share with you something that's been really helpful for me. One, slow down. And if I can't get the job done working at a reasonable pace, the problem lies with me, the one who bid the work, not with my crew. Secondly, how do I make sure that we do what we need to do and do it well? It goes on a checklist. And the first checklist I use is my JSA, my job safety assessment. And on that, it lists all the hazards that I'm looking for and how I'm going to mitigate them. And I'll tell you something that has dawned on me is I'm going to modify that JSA to include daily pre-climb gear inspection. This is something that has just come to me recently. And why don't I do it? Because I hadn't thought about it before. Wow, that's actually pretty, uh, wow. <laughs> it's something that you would think, yeah, obviously it's like, you know, uh, raking up after the, the last load of debris in the chipper. But yeah, if you write it down, oh my goodness, it's right there. It's something that you have to do. It's something, it's like with, with the job briefing. That makes a lot of sense. We all learn by experience, right? And hopefully we can learn from others' experience, not just our own. A good friend of mine, Tony Tressel, has said, and I'm sure others have said, you don't live long enough to make all the mistakes yourself. You got to learn from other people too. You know, if we can reorient the way we think about our work, if we can reorient the way we think about safety and stop pushing ourselves to go faster and instead focus on doing our work well and efficiently, performing a gear inspection becomes a whole lot easier. I've got a story to share with you if I might. Sure. You know, I'm often asked, at what point did gear inspection become important to you? And there's really two answers to that. And one of those is a personal story. A number of years ago when I was living and working in Denver, I was climbing on a harness that I love. It was relatively new. At some point, stupidly, I had been cutting in, cutting with my handsaw very close to my harness. I put a little tiny nick in my bridge. And I was, I was a few years into climbing at this point and not terribly uh, educated about gear inspection and about fiber and about uh, rope performance. And I didn't really think anything of it. I felt stupid. I certainly didn't say anything. And I just kept climbing on it. Lost track of that. A couple of weeks later, as I was climbing, I'm rotating in my harness, trying to reach a cut over the house with my handsaw. And as my bridge is sliding through the ring, I feel it go thunk. I thought, that's an awfully weird feeling. And I had changed the hardware on my bridge and it was wearing the bridge slightly differently. And what it had done is opened the fibers in the cover on the bridge material. And all of a sudden the cover was wide open and the core was sticking out and I'm 40 feet up over this guy's house. Oh no. And, I, <laughs> and I'm looking for the toilet paper, right? <laughs> it was, it was, it was more than eye opening. Oh my goodness. The realization that something had gone wrong that I was in the middle of a situation with an incredible risk and I needed to get down as quickly and safely as possible. I had a sling on my harness. I built sort of a second bridge, clipped into that extra. It was ugly, but I felt a bunch better. And I got myself down out of the tree. 
and the other climber went up and finished it. And aside from feeling really stupid, it opened my eyes to how quickly the condition of equipment can change. And one small nick that I didn't think anything of, I feel differently about it now, but at the time I really didn't think much of it, turned into a huge problem. And that moment has stuck with me. That raised my awareness of the need for gear inspection. Boy, so that was definitely the pivotal moment, your, your aha moment, your light bulb turning on, uh, the importance of, of taking the time to look over your equipment, to not just bypass something that seemed minor. Like you said, something minor can turn into something major faster than you can react to it. And fortunately, you had the time to react to that situation. Yeah. But I, I was indeed fortunate because that could have been me bouncing off the roof and landing on the ground. Oh. And instead, you know, knock on wood, as it were, that was not the case. And two big takeaways from that. One is any damage to a bridge material, immediate replacement of the bridge. There, there is no margin for error. That is our single point of failure, right? So any damage to bridge material, rope, webbing, whatever is specced by the manufacturer, any damage mandates replacement. Even if it's the day after you got it, I would add. Even if it's the day after you got it. And you know what? Bridges are cheap. When I order a new bridge, I try to be diligent about replacing mine about every six months. When I order a new bridge, I order two of them. The new yeah. one goes on my harness and one goes in my bag because in my role now, and when I was contract climbing, I couldn't take myself out of the game if I had damage to my bridge for one reason or another. So I'd come down from the tree, take the new one out of my bag. 10 minutes later, I was ready to climb again. How often do you uh, inspect the, the gear that you have stored in your bag, your spares and your extras? Oh, that's a great question. So our daily pre-climb inspection really is the stuff we're going to use that day. It's the items that I've pulled out. Maybe it's a rope, an access line, a harness, the gear on my harness, just doing a quick big picture inspection there. But everything else in the bag, I think that takes us back to that. What I find effective is a quarterly inspection. Dump everything out, partner up and look at somebody else's gear. And it's whether it's in your bag, it's in your locker, it's on a second harness. Some people will have two harnesses. Great. Pull them both out. Look at everything. And from a documentation standpoint, we talked about this a little bit earlier, anything that is used on the job site should be documented. It should be documented, even if it's once in a while, even if it's, oh, I almost never use it, or it's new, or I'm trying it from a friend, wondering if I like this gadget or that gadget. I, as a business owner, and all of us business owners and managers, we are responsible and accountable for the equipment used on our job sites. And we need to take the lead in ensuring that that is documented because their condition of it and whether it meets our standards is extremely important. Each company should have some sort of a document identifying what gear is allowed and not allowed on their job sites. There's plenty of homebrew stuff you can buy on the internet right now. Some of it's pretty cool, some of it is terrifying, and none of it is tested. And so being very clear within the company, this goes back to culture, of what is allowed and what is not allowed on a job site. I'm not saying whether it's safe or not, but here's the parameters for work that, or excuse me, for equipment that will be used in work that is associated with my company. That sounds like it would be a double protection, not only for the employer and the company against something that is untested and unknown, but also for the climber. If they're not familiar with the, the, a new piece of gear or something they're borrowing from a friend, um, that would, it would sound like that would be a, 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 just a double way to keep, keep things under more control rather than, uh, you know, I'll just try it here. It's a last 
job of the day. Um, yeah, it's, it's always good to have those procedures in place before you let something into the, the job site that's unfamiliar. That makes a lot of sense. And it absolutely does. And you brought up something else as well. Let's say my climber, Bob, and his junior climber, Sue, are working on uh, you know, finishing some tree and they're ahead of schedule. And Sue wants to try a piece of gear. And so Bob says, yeah, I have got one of those. Why don't you try it? Real interesting that gear gets handed off between people. And maybe it's just briefly. But is Sue trained on using this ascender or that ascender or that redirect or whatnot? It raises interesting questions. And uh, I'll, I'll give a little shout out to a friend of mine at TreeWise, Scott Clifton down in Vancouver, Washington. Scott's got a policy that when a new piece of equipment is allowed at the company, that everyone is trained on its use. Oh, nice. So you don't end up with a safety issue of it getting handed between two or three or four different people. And it ends up with somebody who's never used it before. And now they rig it backwards and something catastrophic happens when all they were doing was trying something out. That's a great idea. Yeah, it's an excellent idea. And I, I, as always, we learn from each other, right? And that's something that I've adopted from uh, Scott's recommendation. Building an effective and consistent safety culture is hard. You know, I, I hope that in our conversation today, I've, I have not in any way seemed to minimize the effort that goes into this. And I am definitely not perfect myself. We are all in a learning process. We are all constantly evolving. And each day, if we can take a step forward, if we can be a little bit better, if we can learn something, if we can unlearn something, we can get a little closer to that goal that we all want, which is to have a safe workplace, to have high quality employees where everyone goes home and has a great life. And that's the objective. And each day we can get a little closer to that. Join us next time as we sit down with Tobias Weigand and discuss summer and storm preparation. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about what we're doing, visit us at podcast.tcia.org.